Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Simon Pavey. Helga Pedos. Charlie Borman. Chris Birch. Elizabeth Martin. Quentin Smart. Bernard Smith. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. I don't know if you know it, but when I was in my 20s, by the way, I'm Jim Martin, the host here at Adventure Rider Radio. In my 20s, I started a publishing company. We produced magazines and an event. Anyway, in one issue of the magazine, our editor wrote a story, and the title was something to do with manana. Now, I'd never heard of the word manana before this. Manana is a Spanish word, meaning an indefinite time in the future or tomorrow. And it was the first time I'd sort of come across this, but the concept, the concept of manana, I knew very well, of course. And it was one of those times where a word really sticks with you. This word had me thinking about it long after the fact, because even at that age, I was already putting things off to tomorrow, the manana thing. But there was something more to it. It kind of struck a chord with me as one of those metaphors for life. The more I thought about it, the more I realized that, to me anyway, manana was kind of a dream, a dream that we all do. It's the idea that we have so much time that you can put something off for way into the future. And we count on time being there for us, like we were guaranteed tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and going on, well, kind of forever. I know we understand the concept of mortality, but sometimes mortality feels like manana. Until it doesn't. My name's Isabel Abrams. I'm from England. And, and I'm Carl Abrams. I'm also from England. Um, I used to. This is the Abrams. They had a tidy life, a traditional life, many would say, living in the UK. Carl had been working for an insurance company for over three decades, the same place. Isabel had been working at her job for about three decades. She teaches piano as well as uh, being a musical director. They both enjoy their jobs and, of course, the security that came with that as well. Now, I think for Carl and Isabel, this kind of started out as a bit of a concept. This, we're going to ride our motorcycles around the world. It was something exciting to tell people, to talk about, and sort of feel comfortable with because this was a plan for tomorrow, maybe manana. Maybe not quite manana, but no definite date because there's still so much to do today. And that today to-do list was so easy to expand. I, I mean, I don't think they did any real planning at that point. They bought the bikes, but it was just so far off the idea of this round-the-world trip. Kind of a dream in a way. But one day Isabel found a lump in her breast and the diagnosis of that forced her to confront her own mortality and suddenly, manana just didn't work anymore. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you.
Well, I guess what I do now is ride my motorbike. I was a piano teacher and musical director. And I'm also from England. Um, I used to be an insurance account manager uh, for 34 years, 34 years of security. And I jacked it all in to ride my motorbike. Carl, Isabel, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank, Thank you. you. You threw it all away is what you're saying. You basically, basically, we sold everything, threw it all away and thought, yeah, why not? Let's go for a ride. We just bought our first house that either of us had ever owned, actually. I'd never owned a house before I met you. No. And we just got a mortgage in 2017 um, and haven't finished paying it off. So, yeah, just, and we've still got it. We're desperately trying to sell trying it. Trying to sell it. <laughs> We're still paying oh. the mortgage, which is draining the trip mm. finances terribly. Right. Um, well, this is such a, a departure from the normal story that you hear about this sort of thing where people have, <laughs> you've, you know, had the the job they've worked at for so many years, which you guys have by the sounds of it, or at least Carl has. But the, the home thing being new, you think you would be still all excited and pumped about the home and not willing to let that go well, at any cost. We, we well, were. we are. We were. Um, and kind of we still are. But we've also, even before we had the house, we've had this idea of we just ride around the world. It seemed like a silly idea at the time. Um, but the only way to make it happen is to release <laughs> some of the capital from the house as well as from the pensions. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to go. And we're kind of at the mindset that as long as we keep some of the capital from the house and invest it so that when we come back to the UK, if we come back to the UK, then um, we still have something box. we can... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so it's a horrible box to live in. Garden shed. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's 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 financial suicide. What we're doing, and it was it was really difficult decision because I've done my job for over thirty years and I love my job. Um, and yeah, it was it was a difficult decision. And the day I handed my notice in, I actually got back in the car and cried. It was really hard, but to do this is what had to happen. So yeah. you spent 30 years teaching piano and doing what? Yeah, teach, teaching piano in different schools. And um, I was a musical director doing shows in the theatre for um, local amateur dramatics groups. Oh, wow. Okay, so you're, you're really I committed with that sort of thing. Carl, and you, you spent how long with insurance? Mm -hmm. 34 years. Might have even been more than that. Years. I'm not sure. About 34 you do, years. What did you do for insurance? Uh, I was a contract manager. So um, if you bought an insurance policy that, I don't know, let's say it uh, covered your house, uh, if you then had problems with your drain, uh, you would then contact the insurance company. The insurance company would say, yeah, we'll send someone out. I will have put that contract in place for that company to be the right company to go out and do the job. So are you the guy that makes the decision on whether somebody gets coverage and how well it gets covered? Mm, no, I don't do the claims coverage as such. I'm the oh, guy that good. was, oh, yeah, yeah, please don't lynch me straight away. That's good. No, no, totally let you off, Carl, because there's probably people that are just leaning into this thinking it was you, you. He's just saving you. When, when my basement was flooded, it was you that wouldn't cover it. Okay, I see. Yeah. Saving all so, the unsubscribes. So, so you were, you were, what you were doing is you were, you were facilitating the repair. Yes. Is, is what you were, yes. or whatever the claim was. You, you were actually, exactly. you were after the fact they've already committed to doing it and then you were just sort of putting the money out there and putting the money out and putting the parameters in place as to what this company should should be doing how they report it back to us and everything <laughs> so yeah 
it's that contractual arrangement between a third party that's then providing the service that our customer needed. 30 years for Isabel, 34 years for you, Carl. How did you guys meet? Is this a fairly new thing? Because you said you just bought the house in 2017. Well, this is a, we're called Life 2 on tour. Uh, We're called Life 2 primarily because uh, we've both come from previous marriages. And for one reason or other, they didn't work. Um, We met through blood running. We were volunteer blood runners for Serve Kent. Um, And for anyone outside of the UK who's not familiar with it, it's volunteer riders, motorcycle riders, who will collect blood products from a central hospital or whatever and then deliver it to a local hospital out of hours. So we operate between 7 o'clock at night and 7 in the morning. Um, for nothing. We would just do it as volunteers. So if there was someone in trouble that needed a blood product in, let's say, Canterbury, um, we would ride into London, pick up the box and take it to Canterbury and deliver it to the path lab. And mm. then they would do what they need to do with it. Um, I became quite heavily involved with that charity. I became treasurer and uh, trustee of the charity. Um, Izzy joined as a volunteer. And um, after a period of time and everything else, we kind of met, found that we were like-minded souls. But it was through the joy of motorcycling that we uh, we got together. Isabel, how did you start riding? What Have you been riding your whole life? That's, you got your license no, when you were... No, I've only been riding, I'm 55 now. I think I started, well, I started riding in 2011. So what was that, 13, 14 12, 13, 14 years ago. Um, yeah, I suppose it's just some sort of midlife crisis, really. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, you just see a bike go by one day and then decide, <laughs> I want to ride. Well, my ex decided to buy a bike. I was still married at the time. My ex decided to buy a bike. And I said, oh, well, I'm going to buy a bike. He said, well, you can't ride one. I said, well, I'm going to learn then. <laughs> so I bought a 125 <laughs> and set off around the field. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he went from there, did my CBT, then did my test. Um, and because I bought a bike, oh, if mum's got a bike, then uh, we're going to buy one. So my two sons then went out and bought a bike. Oh, wow. They were, they were 21 and 19 at the time. I thought, oh, you're going to die. So oh, we said, right, oh. we're all going to do our advanced, uh, our advanced riding courses. So we all did the advanced riding courses just to make them better riders and um, improve our riding. And we did that with the Institute of Advanced Motorists. and. Um, and then I actually became an observer as well. So I then started training other people through their advanced test um, and then joined the blood runners through that because my observer, when I was doing my training, happened to be a blood runner. And I said, oh, well, what's that? And he told me. And um, my niece had had a cancer and in, um, previously so and had a lot of blood transfusions. And when we found out that Sir Kent had delivered some of those, I thought, well, that's the best, that's the charity for me to give something back to the NHS for her good treatment. And just in case Izzy understates this, <laughs> when Izzy, Izzy worked her way up through the, through, through the ranks, if you like, within Serve Kent, she became the first female response rider for any of the blood uh, running charities within the UK. Within um, the UK, not just Kent. I think it was the UK. Is it? Okay, well, let's, let's, before Jim gets bombarded with all these people, say it wasn't the UK, it was just Kent. 
Let's mm. say it was just Kenya. <laughs> Let's say I told you she'd understate. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it basically qualified us to use uh, blue lights uh, if we needed to, if it was an urgent run, and obviously under all the right conditions yeah. and requirements and things. So we were for the an people were called to upon done. to do the but emergency. Izzy became calls. the first female response rider uh, uh, within the charity as well. Why is it that you need motorcycles to move blood in the UK? The roads are so jammed. Yeah, because the roads are so yeah, the roads are so busy. Um, really, it really came about because motorcyclists, being motorcyclists, always want to give something back to the community. Motorcyclists tend to get a bad rap because we ride around in black leathers and uh, make lots of noise and what have you. So motorcyclists like to try and give something back. So it was started as motorcyclists back doing the, the blood running. Um, but actually, in reality, cars can do the job just as well. And in fact, the blood running charities now use cars as well. Um, it's only during the daytime, busy times, like uh, bank holidays and weekends when we'd be operating three, four hours that bikes will come into their own for getting in and out of cities through traffic. Mm. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. And mm. I mean, and it's nice to know that in those cases, it may make the difference. Yes. Oh, it does. It does. You never meet the people that you've helped, no. but very occasionally you meet a relative standing at the door panicking um, and in a bit of a state. Yeah. And you arrive and you I, say, oh, you had a story about that. Didn't yeah, you? To, 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 to digress, I suppose, I had one particular incident and it was midsummer. The call came in about two o'clock in the morning, and it was a uh, it was a, a quick run, a blue light run, um, an urgent one for blood to be picked up from London going down to Canterbury. And I said, normally we normally we would hand it over. We'd have a stop halfway, and you'd have riders do a relay system. I said, no, it's all right. I'll go the whole distance. So just a, a normal job. Got to Canterbury took the box into the path lab, handed it over, got my document signed and everything else and started walking out. As I was walking out, this guy comes up to me and grabs my hand and says, you've just delivered uh, blood products, haven't you? And he said, I said, yeah. He said, oh, that's for my, oh, crap, I forgot now. I think it was his mother. I can't remember. But it was for a relative of his who was in theatre running out. Tears were pouring down his face. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm getting emotional about it, even just yeah. recording it, even now. Um, yeah, so very occasionally you meet someone who you help, but 99% of the time you just do it for giving something back to the community. And when you say in theatre, we would call it in surgery. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, literally yes. on the table. In surgery, yeah. yes. No, that's, that's incredible. And Carl, I was asking about um, getting started in riding. So obviously you've been riding a long time too, I gather then. Yes, I started riding really because my parents said I shouldn't. <laughs> ah, that's a good motivation. <laughs> that's the classic one, isn't it? So, when I was at home, I wasn't allowed a motorbike. So when I left home, I decided to get a motorbike and do my test. That was in the good old days when uh, I hired a a one two five. Did a uh, when you go to do your test. The examiner says, you ride around this figure of eight block. When I step out in front of you, do an emergency stop. And as long as you don't run the examiner over, you pretty much pass. Um, <laughs> I had to do a proper test. So I passed. And then three days after passing, I bought myself a GPZ 750, 
two days after that, I was riding round, round Paris. Um, I was just totally green and naive. I didn't really know. Um, but that was my introduction to motorcycling. And I then went on and became a dispatch rider in London for a short period. Uh, it was only about nine, nine to 12 months, I think. Uh, but that was interesting. So, yeah, I've had bikes pretty much in my life. To be fair, back in, in that time you're referring to, let's just say it was a number of years ago, uh, <laughs> there, there were fewer cars in the road and cars didn't go as fast. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. exactly. I mean, I'm trying to come up with something here. <laughs> so yeah. when you guys, like before this, this round the world thing, before you guys, you know, throwing your life in and <laughs> changing everything, I forget exactly how you said it, but um, the worst or a financial disaster, before you did this, what got you looking at riding around the world? Like, what sort of sparked well, your interest in that? Well, this, this is where Rizzy comes in. Yeah, we decided to go on a tour to, uh, we've we been to Denmark, see friends and back, and fallen in love with Scandinavia. And so we must do more of Scandinavia. So we all, we arranged, it's all a bit spooky, really, because it was about 2016. And we said, well, in 2018, we'll save up. And in 2018, we'll go and do Scandinavia because it's quite expensive. And I just came home. About February, one day in February from work in 2017, and just said, "Let's go this year to Scandinavia." I don't know why we need to go this year. Um, I think I'm a bit of a witch, but anyway. <laughs> so um, yeah, I can vouch for that, <laughs> Carl. Um, <laughs> so we said, oh, I said, "We said okay." So we started planning, and we organised a three-week tour because Carl could only get three weeks off work at any one time. So we organised a three-week tour for the very end of my school term in July. Um, to go around Scandinavia. We did Norway, went up to Nordcap, came down through Sweden, called into our friends in Denmark and came home. Um, now, and the, sorry, let me just ask, mm -hmm. is, is that a motorcycle trip? Motorcycle trip, yeah. Okay. Motorcycle trip. Um, right. And uh, of course the family was saying, well, let's, um, we need to follow your journey. So we started doing a blog. That's how the Life Two on Tour came about. Mm. Thought of having a blog for the family to read, we need to call ourselves something. So that's where the Life Two on Tour name started. Um, so off we went and we did did our trip and um, it's all it's all good. And on the we were sort of riding around saying, wouldn't it be great? We could just just carry on riding and just never go home. Well, not never go home. Obviously, we miss the children. But, you know, just carry on riding around the world. But we didn't know anybody that had done it. We didn't know if it was a thing. I mean, how do you do something like that if you've got mm. to work and earn money and and all that kind of thing? So more importantly, I only had a three week <laughs> yeah. period holiday period where I had to cram something in. And doing a trip to North Cap and back really was cramming it in. In fact, we were you two days got late. a six month sabbatical, but that would have been it. And we, yeah. we thought well, we can't get around the world for six months. It's just a sort of a pipe dream, if you like, something we didn't know if it was possible. And we came back from from that trip. The, that was the beginning of August in 2017. Uh, bought a house, moved. That was all great. Got back to work, and within within weeks in October, I found a lump. In my breast. We're going to stop right here. I've got two things I want to tell you about, and then we've got a lot more coming up. Stay with us. Rene Cormier is a well-known adventure traveler. We had him on the show, actually one of the first shows we did almost 10 years ago. Rene takes what he learned on his trip, four and a half years on the road, traveling around the world by motorcycle, and he puts that into the trips that he's been running for the past 14 years as Renadian Adventures. And Africa, Africa is one of his top destinations. And despite Africa being one of those places that a lot of riders say is super tough, Renee says that their African trips, the Renadian trips, 
are the most vacation-y style trips of all their guided tours, and they do them all over the place. Brene says they have nice adventures during the day and lots of comfort at night. The routes can be all paved with some gravel sections. And Renee says Africa is safe to travel because they ride in rural areas and spend nights in really upmarket lodges. Great value, luxury lodges, great food and wine. He also says that riders who are new to international touring will find Africa as a great starting destination. And let's face it, Africa has so much to offer. I mean, we hear the stories here on Adventure Rider Radio. Renadian Adventures has new bikes to rent. They've got a full-time crew based in Cape Town to help with planning. And for those who might want to take a non-rider with them, you can. Renadian Adventures is pillion-friendly, meaning the roads are not only okay for pillions, but their itineraries are built for activities and scenery that are meant for pillions as well. And as always in Africa, they've got a chase truck that follows the group. So if the pillion needs to take a break or has a tummy bug or something, they go into that chase truck and... Every year, apparently, there ends up being a spouse who attends only in the chase van. They want to see Victoria Falls, go on safari, stay in the luxury lodges, but they have zero interest from doing that at the backseat of a motorcycle. And that's okay with Renadian. RenadianAdventures.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And you got to check out their brochure, the 2024 brochure. RenadianAdventures.com. Two people packed up with all their gear on a KTM, two up, the driver wearing a cast on his wrist. That's really the beginning of this incredible invention I love so much, the Atlas Throttle Lock. Because it was that trip that I'm talking about, that KTM two up, that was the catalyst for Heidi and David Winters to go through all the work of designing and building the most incredible throttle lock in the world. This is a piece of craftsmanship that makes riding more fun and and possibly even a safer thing to do. The Atlas Throttle Lock changed the way I ride, both long and short trips. It's a beautifully machined device that clamps onto your handlebar in seconds. It's solid. It's made like a Swiss watch. There's two buttons on it, one for engage and the other for disengage. And they provide a tactile feedback that you can feel even through your gloves. So you don't have to look down. You know what you're doing just by touch. And that's key. It just works beautifully to hold your throttle position. If you need more, you roll on a little more throttle, it holds a new position. You want less, you back off the throttle, it holds a new position. No need to disengage. And every time you use it, it releases the tension on your fingers, your hand, your wrist, your forearm, even your arm muscles. And if you're more comfortable, that means less fatigue. Less fatigue means a safer ride. Another bonus is the Atlas Throttle Lock easily moves from one bike to another. It's very simple to take it on and off. Seriously, I think it will change the way you ride. AtlasThrottleLock.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. AtlasThrottleLock.com. So went to the doctor and was put on the fast track two weeks to see the consultant two weeks. for the, So it was, I was seen really quickly for everything. And in December of that year, the 13th, it's always the 13th, um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I saw the consultant and he um, referred me for what they call the triple test, which is a mammogram, an ultrasound, and then if needed, a biopsy. So I went for those and had all three done. And that was the first time, I think, when you saw the radio, the the chap that did the biopsy, his, he sort of took the samples, put them in the little test tubes or whatever, and you saw them and his face was just different to everybody else's. And I, I knew anyway, deep inside, I knew, but you kind of still have that tiny shred of hope. You think, well, until they tell me, it's not true. 
mm. you know, although yeah. you really know. Um, and he said, it was just before Christmas, and he said, look, these take could take up to two weeks to get the results, so don't panic if you don't hear anything. I said, okay, yeah, that's That fine. was a nice Christmas, wasn't it? Well, it was, but then... We didn't want to tell any of the family. We didn't want to... There's nothing to tell at that sure. point. No, really. we had nothing yeah. to tell. So, um, I don't know what the date was at that point, maybe the 18th or 19th of December, something like that. And I thought, okay, well, it's going to be after Christmas, probably before I hear. Um, and then I missed a call five days later and got a text message saying, you've got an emergency appointment with your consultant. I thought, oh, okay. Well, they've obviously found something because I haven't. They'd still be testing it. Yeah. So um, went back to the consultant and you sit down and you still, you see, it's, it's a strange thing. You're teetering. The way I describe it is you're teetering on the edge of a cliff and you're at that point where you're wobbling and you're about to fall but you haven't fallen until he then says, well, you've got breast cancer. And that was a very surreal moment because you kind of fall off the cliff. It was like an out-of-body experience because I had the consultant and a nurse the other side of the table and Carl and I one side of the table. And I was round the other side of the table looking at me with everybody else. And all four of us were staring at me, <laughs> waiting for my reaction. And it was yeah. really surreal. And then I kind of was back in myself and, you know. And then you jump on that conveyor belt. The tears, I felt a tear pouring down my cheek. But then I went into practical mode. Well, okay, what do I do about work? What do I do about this? Because that's the way mm. to cope. Because it's practical. Yeah, the practical conveyor belt, as you say. Um, I had to wait then all through Christmas and New Year for my operation in January. So that was a very surreal Christmas and New Year. I bet. So obviously we told the family once I was diagnosed, so my, my sons first and then um, my mum and then all my brothers and sisters. But um, yeah, you go into coping mode because you know um, that they might not cope as well as you with the news. So you end up being the one that manages everybody else. But actually it should be the other way around. <laughs> but that's just how it is. So you have to stay strong for everybody else. I wonder if that's just how it is when you're the mom. I mean, moms have this special place, you know. Yes. Um, my two are very pragmatic boys. And um, they were into the kind of, well, have you got enough money? <laughs> that was one of them. Have you got enough money? Do you need help with that? I said, no, that'll be fine. Um, and the other one was, well, if there's anything I can do, take you to hospital or take you to appointments, you know, let me know. Yeah. Um, I think almost worse was telling my mum. Other members of my family have had cancer. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, not another one. Who am I going to tell her? <laughs> and that was hard. That was hard. So, yeah, so then I had to get all through Christmas and New Year. And I had my operation. I had a lumpectomy um, to remove the tumour and a sentinel node biopsy. So they check your lymph nodes at the beginning of the January. And when that was done, I was then re-diagnosed as having lobular cancer, um, which is a, obviously ductal cancer starts in the duct, the, uh, the milk ducts, and lobular cancer starts in the lobules. I think I've got that right. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, I didn't understand what that meant. And then the consultant explained that basically with lobular cancer, it doesn't normally form a lump, and I had a small lump, so I feel very grateful for that. It normally forms in a line, so it's not picked up on mammograms. It's not picked up on, on much of the screening, really, um, until it's far more advanced, and it can spread, and you can have lots of lobulars all over both breasts without really knowing they're there. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, so then I needed an MRI. But because I'd had my operation, they couldn't do the MRI because I was all bruised and swollen. I had to wait for all that to go down. So I had that three months later. Luckily, there was no other signs of, of cancer and it wasn't in my lymph nodes. So I had a month's worth of radiotherapy um, or three weeks worth of radiotherapy um, treatment. Um, but then I found out it was also a pleomorphic subcategory. And pleomorphic is really not a good one to get because being lobular and pleomorphic, and I'm not medical, so I, I can't really remember all the ins and outs, but basically by the time you found it, normally it's spread. So oh. you're then in just a managing situation rather than a curing situation. So I just feel so eternally grateful that mine did form a lump. It was found, or I found it, and um, it was treated. And then I suffered so much survivor's guilt. It was something that I really struggled with. Um, I had a, fr a close friend at the time. He was diagnosed with terminal kidney cancer at the same time that I was diagnosed. Um, and he passed away in 2021. Mm. And we did the front bike escort for his funeral. And all the way along to the crematorium, in my head, I'm thinking, why am I still here? Why is he not here? Why am I still here? And I'm not a religious person, but I just kept thinking, there's, there's a reason I'm here. And apart from anything else, I've got to not waste this opportunity I've been given um, that other people haven't been given. And in 2020, when we went into lockdown, a lady contacted me on Messenger and we were in a a bike group together on Facebook and she'd seen my posts about, oh, I had cancer and back riding. And she was diagnosed with cancer and um, she had triple negative cancer. And when she told me that, I thought, oh, that's, that's really not good. And it was, it was terminal, but they were treating it and she hoped to live for many years. But sadly, it was, it was about six months later or five or six months later and she passed away. And she'd mm. done lots of adventuring. She was such an inspiration to me and to, and to Carl on, on this trip. And we sort of said, oh, yeah, we're going around the world in three years, really not believing it. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of we had, we joked about it. But then I was going through a period of I need to lose some weight. So I got the push bike out. And yes. you met me halfway around a rather challenging bike ride I'd given myself. Oh, that was just during my treatment. And I was yeah. up for riding. And I said, well, I'll drive to the cafe and meet you. Yeah. So I did. And while I was waiting, because I got there first, I just, something made me open my phone and I Googled how to ride a motorbike around the world. And it came up with Bruce Smart's Teapot One channel. And that happened to come up first. I thought, okay, there's something we can watch there. So you arrived and I said, we need to watch this and see what it's all about. So we then watched Teapot's journey around the world. And um, Well, yeah, but before that, even while we were at the cafe, I turned up at the cafe puffing and panting, <laughs> like a complete and utter wreck. And you turn around and said, oh, we really need to ride around the world. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so this is, yeah, you guys had already talked about it in a loose sort of way. And then right. I guess, I guess when you're diagnosed with cancer, you, it goes out the window, or at least it gets, you know, forgotten about, of yeah. course. Yeah, I mean... We, but it we also focuses. It does focus. Know. Having, my, I had a, a, my young niece, when, well, when she was young, she had two primary bone cancers and had a terrible time and she's 22 now but um you think you've got to you know you, you know you've got to live your life you've got to enjoy every moment live for today 
don't put things off. And you think you're doing that. And we were doing that quite well, I think, mm. really. Mm. And then the diagnosis of cancer comes to yourself. And it... Can- cancer makes, you, makes it feel really finite. Life is finite. Yes. So therefore, mm. you have to do what you can. Yeah, and I think it just puts that final piece of jigsaw in place. And you realise, and I suddenly understood, I thought, that's what living in the moment is. And I totally understood it. And whilst, obviously, you wish you'd never had cancer, <laughs> in a way, I'm pleased I'd had it because... It, it gave a clarity. It gave a clarity that we didn't quite have in what's important in life. And it's, I think it's very sad that we need that trauma. And it doesn't have to be cancer. It could be a bad accident or anything. But we need that trauma to actually realise. Well, this is where that Confucius saying comes in. Oh. Your favourite saying. My favourite saying. Confucius said, we have two lives and the second one begins the moment we realise we only have one. Mm. And it's, it's true. It's true. You mentioned clarity there. You sort of, you, you get a clarity of, of what life is about. Can you, can you talk about that? W- what did you discover? Um, just not wanting to waste, waste opportunities and not, if you have a dream, not to just sit back and let it pass, to try and make it happen. I mean, that was 2018, my treatment, wasn't it? And then we said, we need to make this happen. We didn't know how to make it happen. No. So we emerged ourselves in the Overland community. And the more we met people who'd done it and talked to them and listened to the presentations, the more we realised this is something we really wanted to do. So it, it was a totally new world for us to, to delve into. We started telling people that we're going to ride around the world, <laughs> not really believing in ourselves. <laughs> Simon and Lisa, for instance. Yeah, we went on one of their photographic courses. Highly recommend those, by the way. If anybody wants to do a photographic course, they're very, very good. And we've gone on one of those to improve our um, editing skills with, with computers and the software and things. And um, we were just sitting having a drink and he said, well, when are you going around the world then? This was in 2022. I said, well, we were going to go next year, but we might leave it till 2024. And he said, why? I said, well, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just procrastination because oh, it's only a year. We're not ready. We're not ready. Yeah. He said, well, what do you need to get ready? I said, well, I don't know. I suppose we need an American visa first if we're going to Alaska. So he said, do it. We just took it one step at a time and we, um, that summer then we sorted out, we applied for our American 10-year visa and uh, so that we could have at least six months in the country. And it's, there's a wait. So we applied for that, I think, July, August. And then we got our interview in the February. 14th. February 14th, Valentine's yes. Day. So off we trotted to London and we got our American visa. And that was the moment that we thought, well, we've no more excuses now. We've got a visa. There's nothing else stopping us actually going. <laughs> Can't think of any other reasons not to go. What was the trip that you were, you were thinking about though? Because you say around the world. I mean, is is it you're going to go for six months or a year? Or are you talking about what Simon and Lisa Thomas do, who you just mentioned, uh, continuous well, or did continuous traveling? We have a finite budget yeah. that uh, we keep going as far as as long as the budget can last. So probably going to get stuck in Chile. Yeah, the so <laughs> yeah, the way, the way we're going is running out very quickly. So in Chile, you're just going to have to get a job and and, and <laughs> yeah. just live so there. Right? To fly home yeah, and go. Exactly, well, we yeah. got that far. But, but don't tell the Chilean government. But you've sold your house and everything. So so I mean, the, the plan is only to go as, until you've spent all your money, and then what do you do? Well, I don't know. We'll make it up as we go along. 
So you only planned that far. That's, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I told you. I, I told no, I'm you. not laughing it, at you. I think it's I great. You, I mean, it, it was a foolish financial decision. You know, it, it, people do this in their twenties or thirties when yeah. they've still got time to get careers and earn yeah. money and buy houses and have children. We've done it all topsy turvy. Well, you know what? That's so. That's so true, Isabel. But if you think about it. In your 20s and 30s, you've got a lot of time ahead of you that you need to prepare for. So, I mean, you, you know, as we get older, we have less time after, you know, when we think about it and when we get yeah. into our 50s and 60s, how much longer are you going to be here for? So, I mean, how much is, prep do you need to do? Exactly. It's a different way of looking at it. Which is why we're here. You know, it's, um, we, uh, so we we decided that we would get the expensive bit out of the way first by flying our bikes out to Alaska. So we do that expensive bit first. With uh, Izzy had always wanted to go to Alaska. I don't know why. Since no, I was a I child, I thought Alaska cold. sounds really exotic and fancy and cold and snowy, and I love the snow. Yeah. Um, so so our, yeah. So our baptism of fire was the Dalton Highway, <laughs> uh, which we survived up to Dead Horse. Uh, I have to say we were so disappointed because we had all our thermal gear and our <laughs> riding gear. <laughs> And we got up to Dead Horse, and it was thirty degrees Celsius. Yeah, it was blistering. <laughs> my money back. Which is uh, what in, in Fahrenheit, thirty in Celsius, late 80s. 80 some odd or something. Yeah. So yeah, that was our baptism of fire, um, and that was our only plan. Yeah, that was. We, our- we flew into our, into Anchorage on Friday. We picked the bikes up on a Monday, and we were leaving on the Tuesday at the end of well, first of August, which is our wedding anniversary. Yeah. And we said, well, the only thing we need to plan, because you need to book your accommodation and your minibus to go for the swim, is is Prudhoe Bay. So we looked at the weather, because that was obviously weather we didn't want to do if it was pouring with rain. And um, we looked, we said, well, it looks like it's going to be nice for the next week. We need to start with this. So we did. We booked the hotel. We said, I think we'll get up there and we don't go fast. Yeah. But but you're saying that's that's all you planned. But you guys bought your gear and everything. You planned all your gear. You bought two Yamaha T sevens, correct? To have we matching did. bikes. Yes, three weeks before lockdown in 2020. Um, I see. We thought, well, what's the ideal bike? Because you Carl had a um, Tracer nine hundred. Tracer nine hundred. Which they say take the bike you've got, and that's true. But for doing off road and things like that, the Tracer nine hundred wasn't ideal. Um, I tried it and it didn't have the ground clearance. It grounded on the road bikes <laughs> in Ireland, so that really wasn't going to work. <laughs> well, I think the saying, take the bike you got, really is, is just about, you know, don't worry about having yeah. the perfect bike. But I mean, if you exactly. want something and you can afford something that is more suitable, why not, right? And why, why not get what you're going to feel great about? Exactly. Yeah. So we'd researched it and thought, the I had to try Tiger 800 and I did say it's going to take a lot to get me off this. I love this bike and it will do everything we need to do. So... And part of the reason we chose the T7s is because they don't have all this fancy electronics mm. gizmo and things that many other bikes have. So they are relatively We're not easy. mechanics. We need to Welcome. be able to have half a chance of fixing something on the road. Yeah. So, so the T7 is wrong. fuel injected but, but and must have ABS. It has ABS, yes. Yeah. yes. I mean, but you can, you can turn, it turn it off. off but we, we leave it on. But yes, it has ABS because the EU rules require bikes over a certain size to have ABS. Yeah. But right. other than that, Whilst I've had bikes before that have rider modes, I've always just left them and not touched them. And my rider mode is my right wrist. You know, it's uh, that's just <laughs> the way I ride. You know, if it's, if it's a bit wet or a bit slippery, I use the right wrist a little less. Well, that is the way it used to be, wasn't it? You, <laughs> yeah, you got a bike and the ride mode up. was yeah. your wrist. Yeah. You didn't need to have some big brother watching over you on a computer algorithm. No. 
I've got two things I want to tell you about. Then when we come back, we've got a lot more to this story. Stay with us. Hexinnovate.com is the inventor of the GS911. Now, in case you're not aware, that's the diagnostic tool that has changed the lives of many BMW riders. The GS911 allows you to see inside the computer system that runs BMW motorcycles. It can check fault codes and help diagnose problems in the system in a way that only a dealership could before. It's truly revolutionary. It can save you the expense not only of a dealership visit, but also the GS911 gives you some peace of mind while you're riding your bike, well, anywhere, because if something goes wrong with your BMW, instead of it being left as a dead bike at the side of the road of the trail, you pull out your GS911 out of your pocket and begin checking systems. It's a game changer for BMW riders and probably should be a staple for every BMW rider toolkit. So that's the GS911. Now, Hex Innovate also invented the EasyCan Accessory Manager. Now, the EasyCan is a device that plugs into well, all kinds of motor, uh, modern motorcycles into their CAN bus system, not just BMWs, Harleys, Ducatis, KTMs, Husqvarna's, Triumph, Yamaha, Honda. The EasyCan allows you to add accessories without cutting a bunch of wires and potentially voiding your warranty and or messing up the system. It allows you to use your existing controls to turn accessories on or off. It's like an amazingly powerful unit. If you add an accessory to your bike and you have a CAN bus system, then you should look at the EasyCan. Even the OEMs like the EasyCan, the, the manufacturers do, because it's a way for riders to add electrical accessories without creating issues in the motorcycle's electrical system. Now, the person behind Hex Innovate, who makes the GS911 and the EasyCan, is an avid motorcyclist just like you and I. And I think that's a huge part of what makes companies like Hex Innovate so great, is that, that passion behind the company itself. The website is hexinnovate.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in the that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hexinnovate.com. Can you imagine hiking, let's say, a wet, slippery mountain in running shoes with no tread on them? I don't know what kind of shoe that could be. Maybe it could be a bowling shoe. But you know what the picture I'm trying to paint here? Well, having a set of IMS products foot pegs on your bike will feel like you just went from hiking that slippery, wet mountain in those bald running shoes to wearing magnets on steel plates. IMS has designed their full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs specifically for that riding style, adventure riding, covering all disciplines of adventure riding. So if you ride open fire roads and long distances, you may prefer the ultra-wide ADV-1s and ADV-2s. Those huge platforms give you incredible leverage for controlling, a, especially a loaded adventure bike. They also spread the contact pressure out, giving you a more comfortable riding position for long miles. If you're a more aggressive rider, maybe riding tighter trails, then maybe the Core Enduro Series is your choice. It's a smaller peg than the ADV Series, but larger than stock. It's got an aggressive tooth design that will lock your boot into position and also give you the added leverage and control that you need for your motorcycle. But the staggered tooth design reduces wear on the sole of your boot. All these pegs have incorporated a watershed design which means they're contoured in every spot to prevent mud and debris from sticking to them. So when the going gets real tough, your boot still contacts the peg instead of getting pushed up by packed in mud and crap. I've run these pegs for years now, and I really believe they're a game changer for my riding abilities. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. 
So we bought the bikes, went into lockdown, couldn't ride the bikes. <laughs> we, we, we played it to the letter. We, we, were, we were good. We played it to the letter, so I thought we won't go riding. So we used the opportunity to get the crash bars, get the pannier racks, get the luggage. So you prepped the bike. You put a lot of work into prepping the bike. Yeah. But as far as the actual trip, as far as the travel portion of it, it sounds like you didn't put a whole bunch into it. You must have had a rough idea of where you were going to go. Uh, well, we well, knew we wanted to go to Alaska. Bay to Ushuaia. Ushuaia. It's the first Bay to Ushuaia. That was it. How we get in between the two. We have people know. keep asking us on the road now, how are you getting around the Darien Gap? I said, we don't know. We're we not there yet. <laughs> You're not even close. You're only in Mexico. <laughs> we're, still, we're still working on the, the Belize border, you know. There's <laughs> plenty of time yet. But, uh, no, we purposely hadn't planned it. and We weren't booking accommodation ahead because we wanted to have those opportunities where people would say to us, you really must go and see, do yeah. X, Y, Z. Um and we have that flexibility within our tour to be able to do that. Someone says, oh, you must go to... Well, it happened in Alaska. For instance. Yeah. We, camped with, we camped with those two RVs at Pelly Crossing up in Alaska, yeah. on, on the Yukon. And they said, oh, we're off to Skagway. Have you been there? We said, no. They said, you have to go. It's really, really beautiful. I said, oh, okay, we'll go to Skagway then. So yeah. we did. Pardon me, the wish they hadn't. Why? I mean, it's beautiful. Skagway is beautiful, but that was when I realised that my back had gone. Yeah, you so, had a back issue. Your back was really, really kicked off. Yeah. Um, um, but the whole point of the tour is that we don't plan anything, so we have the flexibility to um, go to places that people suggest. Our only limitations really are, A, our budget, uh, but also our visas. You know, how long are we allowed to stay in the country for? Um, those pretty much are our limitations. Yeah. Can you talk about what it was like when you first arrived, you first sort of get on your bikes uh, and start to ride? Well, when we well, first got on the aeroplane, it started at Heathrow. That. Yeah, um, we, as we said, we got our visas in February. I finished work at the end of March and I just, my job then was to sell everything in the house. And you wake up each morning just going, what do I need to do next? And the, the priority list keeps swapping around. You really don't have time to process any of it. We left... We got on the aeroplane at Heathrow and we sat down and we both burst, burst into tears and said, oh my God, what have we done? <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> because you've sold all your possessions at that point. You've put yep. your house up for sale. Yep. You, you've kind of made it, you, you burned your bridges. Yeah, yes. everything we own is actually now already in Anchorage. It's on the bikes. The bikes have flown out a week before us. Everything we own is on the bikes, apart from our little suitcase we've got with us now, which is going in the bin after this weekend. Um, yeah, we've... What have we done? Um, yeah, did any more any of your more grounded, let's say, family or friends try to pull you aside and say, what's going on? No, interestingly, no. My brother did say, we think you're absolutely crazy. You're, it's, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> he said, but we also admire you hugely because we just couldn't do it. And that's the yeah. kind of response yeah. we've had from everyone. And, and um, sorry, Dad, if you're going to be listening to this, but you're going to hear this bit. Um, <laughs> As we got on the plane, he sent me a text and said, you've proven me wrong again. You're going. I <laughs> found <laughs> <laughs> our friend that passed away from the kidney cancer. Our friend that passed away from the kidney cancer. We went out for lunch with his wife before we left. And she said, well, you've proved him wrong. He said, you'd never go. <laughs> I said, well, we haven't gone yet. <laughs> now, how does that make you feel? Does that make you feel good or bad? Um, what? I just laughed. It didn't really make me feel yeah, anything to be I fair. I just laughed. It's, um, to be honest, if it was left to me, 
I wouldn't, we wouldn't be here now. Um, it's only really because Izzy has driven it and me being the dutiful husband that no, I am, right. obviously, I'd say, well, I'll just do as I'm told. Of course you do. Um, no, in reality, if it was just me, I still wouldn't be here. I'd still be uh, in a job, freezing cold in England somewhere, um, probably doing the same job, dreaming about a... About this thing, but but it's, uh, it's, it does take two. Yes, it, oh, it, it does might take be two. the more of the driving force. You yeah. are a great procrastinator. I am as well, but I have the ability to, to say to myself, "Right, stop procrastinating. You have to do it now." Mm-hmm. So um, I don't leave things quite to the last minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Carl does. Carl waits till it's happened. I go, "Oh, well, maybe maybe I should have brought spare glasses. <laughs> I haven't got any." <laughs> so um, yeah, things like that, but. I sort of drove it, but we, it is a joint effort. You can't, one person can't, no. in, a pair, in a partnership, one person can't do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just all falls into place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we got on the plane and just thought, what have we done? And then we sat there for the weekend in Anchorage with huge anxiety and panicking. Yeah. So I think it all became really real then on the Monday. Like I said, that weekend, we just... We just we went walked around, did the things, bought the beer bag, bought the bear spray, got a SIM card, did all the things we needed to do, and we collected the bikes on the Monday, and that all went really smoothly, no problems at all. We used Moto Freight. Kathy was brilliant, and it all went fantastically. Just literally turned up, signed a few documents, and there they were. Yeah. Um, rode away from there, went back to where we were staying, and we thought, right, well, this is it. Oh my goodness from this moment now we don't know where we're staying tonight and that was that was quite scary mm. and and i say very surreal um mm-hmm. and we just took it day at a time <laughs> we nearly <laughs> failed on day one didn't we i mean this kind of gives you an idea yeah, of the difference between me and izzy okay because it was all my fault it was entirely my fault <laughs> they always say don't drive past a petrol station. Fill up. Even if it was just in the last, the Everybody up. told us that. Everybody told us that. Of course, me. Uh, so we get to half a tank and pass a fuel station. I say, should we fill up? I think we should fill up. No, we'll be fine. No, I really think we should fill up. No, no. And then off he went. I thought, well, I'll just... And we kept going. And then I'm thinking, crikey, okay, where's the next fuel station? <laughs> We're in the middle of nowhere. We're heading north. <laughs> um, and I actually ended up slipstreaming a, uh, a semi-truck yeah. for... I don't know, it's about 40 miles. It was ridiculous. There's a stupid choice. (laughs) A stupid choice. (laughs) got to the petrol station. I know, but but it's just so incredibly dangerous. I mean, it is. Oh, it is. It It really is. is. It was really, really. And nobody do this. Don't. This is not to be recommended. It really is. Mm. It's it's very hard work, but it had to be done. Um, Um, He really pulled off, though, and then he had to slipstream me. I ended up slipstreaming (laughs) easy, so I was then about six inches to a foot (laughs) off her rear wheel, slipstreaming another time. And and this is because you have less fuel than Isabel. He uses more. I use more fuel because I am a a bigger chap. Um, And I think also because I've got a slightly bigger trunk of the body, so I sit slightly higher. I've got all these reasons why I use more fuel than easy, but basically it comes down to the fact that I'm heavier. It's not because you're you're twisting the wrist more, and you're. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes, I pull away Maybe. from junctions nicely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. So anyway, we found out that day that um, we can get at least fifty no, kilometers. Can't. No, fifty miles. Slipstreaming. Oh yeah, because we're okay. just slipstreaming. But I can get at least fifty miles out of reserve uh, on the tank. So we eventually found a fuel station. I must have been on vapors. Well, I was flashing as well. I was on my reserve and had yeah. used a lot of it. So, 
Yes, yeah. crazy. Um, and since then, I said, well, I'm filling up at the next station. You can do what you like. So he always pulls it with me. <laughs> so Isabel, when you said Carl waits until after something happens before he, before he <laughs> plans for it, that's exactly it, isn't it? That's exactly it. I'm Passing the gas station. Thinking, Carl is reactive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. somewhere in the middle it works <laughs> but it yeah. all worked out anyway Carl you made your way you figured out how to do it and even though it was completely ridiculous and unsafe but you know what though thinking about it back to that slipstream behind a vehicle which, which you know I can't say that I haven't done it I know exactly what you're talking about the <laughs> sensation of doing it but it's the dumbest thing that anyone can do and, and in hindsight like it, you know you got away with it but had there been a tire or something that oh, that truck had ridden over, you know, th this could have been a yeah. totally different conversation, right? So, I mean, that's why it's not safe. I, I remember following, and I'll just throw this in here, just for those who are listening to this. I can remember following a tractor trailer too close one time in a vehicle and a tire came underneath the truck and I hit it hard. And boy, if I'd been on my bike at that point, yeah. I, I don't think I would be talking to you today. Mm, I know. No, oh, it, it was, it yeah. was. Really it ridiculous. is a really silly thing to do. Yeah. But at that time, I knew it was the only thing I could do to eke out the fuel that I had in the bike. Um, well, we could have, uh, it was our first day, we could have stopped at the side of the road and somebody would have stopped and helped yeah, us. I it guess. was our first day. That's my point, yeah. yeah. We didn't yeah, really, so, yeah. we hadn't settled into being brave enough to do that sort of thing. Um, but yes, but setting off and having been through what we'd been through with the cancer and I'd finished all my treatments. But being our age as well, we're 55 and 59, you think, what if something goes wrong on the road? You know, how do we deal with these things? And we have had medical issues. Well, it was only You've three weeks in. Three weeks it? in, you hurt your back and had to have had to go to hospital with your back. And then mm. the trip was nearly over. Um, yeah, no, that, that would, let's just talk a little bit about that incident because uh, it was it was fairly, uh, it was, you were getting off the bike, weren't you, Carl? Yes, I was. It was, it was at the end, toward the end of a... Uh, quite a long day. It was a little bit, weather was a bit miserable. We were a bit down. I was side stand down, getting off the bike. My boot had trapped itself on the pannier on the other side. Of course, my weight, I'd overweighted. My boot then released itself and I effectively got catapulted into the uh, rough stone or hard pack stone that we were parked on. Um, didn't think much of it at the time. All that hurt, all that's going to I was bruise. more concerned about the food that was in the backpack. I had a backpack on with all the food in. So obviously as I went down, I'm thinking, don't squash the food. So I kind of <laughs> twisted at the same time as going mm. down. So didn't think much of it. And the next couple of days, I thought, oh, that's just a bruise. Well, that was the it's night we camped where the people recommended going to Skagway. Yep. We were due to spend two nights in Whitehorse to change the back tyres, yep. um, which we went to do. We'd, we'd got an Airbnb there. And... It was while there your back just got progressively worse. You were in agony taking the back wheels off mm. because we wanted to save money. So we said, we'll take the wheels off. <laughs> um, and we then went to Skagway. We camped the night in Skagway and you hardly slept that night. You no. were in a really bad way. And that was when I said, right, forget what we're going to do. We need to book accommodation. So I booked a nice cabin. They had a hot tub, wood-fired hot tub, which we got you in there and that helped. But I said, no, you need to actually see a doctor. Mm. I ended up in Whitehorse in hospital and I had a scan, which was one of the most painful things I've had to do because I had they had to get me in a certain position to get the pictures they needed. Um, and then the doctor showed me the x-rays or the CT scan, whatever it was. And he could, you could see I had uh, compression of three vertebrae. Was it two vertebrae? Two or three discs. 
were really bulging. Nice. And I just burst into tears when I saw it. Yeah. I've had a discectomy, yeah. so I've had a disc out years ago and I knew exactly what so it was. So at meant. that stage, we thought it was kind of game over. But yeah. he prescribed me some fairly oomphy medication. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we booked ourselves an Airbnb for a couple of weeks in Whitehorse, which was wonderful. I was spaced out for a number of days. This is where this, this was at the beginning of the journey when we realised how wonderful people are that you don't know. We, there was a lady staying in the cabin opposite us who said, well, I'll drive you to hospital if you can't get there. Um, the owners of the cabin arranged for somebody to pick us up to take us to, uh, to Car Cross, which they did. But we booked an extra couple of nights there. But then when we realised you had to rest up for at least a couple of weeks, we booked this Airbnb where it was walking distance to the shop so I didn't have to ride the bike every day and it was it was things were around and we had to get both the bikes there so they the people running the cabins were uh, they owned and ran the community center in in Whitehorse so we they drove us they drove you in in the morning didn't she Andrea yeah. drove you in in the morning and I rode one bike we sat around at the community community center all day at three o'clock, she drove you to the Airbnb and I drove one bike there. She then took me back while she finished work, then back to the cabin. And then at eight o'clock that night, I drove the other motorbike over. <laughs> so wow. we got both the bikes where they needed to be and all the luggage. Mm. That's um, one of the huge then, advantages of having you both have your motorcycle license and both able to ride the bike. Yes. Like if it oh. was one bike, I mean, but, but I mean, having two, you know, it's just that you're both riders. That makes a big difference because if you were rider and pillion and the pillion didn't have their their license then that would be very difficult yes mm. it would be so two weeks later with all these heavy medications and all these exercises and things i need to do um we then had a venture or i had a venture out on the bikes to see how i was um izzy had to help me get on and off the bike <laughs> because i couldn't trust my leg to support me when i'm getting off the bike mm. um but i actually found that sitting on the bike was one of the comfiest places I could be as far oh. as my back was concerned. Oh, that's good. So, so we made the decision that we would head out um, and we headed towards Liard Hot Springs. And I have to say, I've never been one to think of thermal hot springs as being anything other than a warm bath to go and paddle in. Um, but a visit to Liard Hot Springs changed my opinion completely about the power of nature, thermal water thermal and the water. power of nature. You saying there's something more than just warm water? Yes, definitely. I, I'm, I'm well, there's all the that. minerals and things in that water in these hot mm -hmm. springs, and it was a it wasn't completely natural hot spring. It hadn't been touched by human hands. There's a boardwalk to it, and there's a boardwalk to get in on one side. All the rest of it is as nature has yeah, it. Just natural banks and things. Um, and we arrived there, and you were you were hardly walking, and you actually complained because I'd booked a pitch that was 400 meters from the boardwalk. So we got down there. We Which got in the hot spring. Took, took you ages. Took you ages. Got in there. You walked back, and the next day you walked over ten thousand steps. Yeah, yeah. is that it's, right? I mean, I'm not into miracles and stuff like that, but it's um, yeah. It was just that warm thermal water, and they had a drop between two pools, and they had a small waterfall that went from one pool to the other. And you could actually sit underneath the waterfall. So that hot water 
pressing on my back in the certain places. Just seeing. I don't think it's just the hot water though, because the other any hot tubs or things like that we've had haven't done the same no. thing. It's the natural minerals and sulfur that are in that water. Mm. Yeah, because you said you had the hot tub already, and now all of a sudden you go to this thing and you come out fixed. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. Maybe we were in the hot tub, uh, in the hot water at the right time for my back to finish the healing that we'd already been doing in White Horse. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm convinced. And if anyone says to me now, where's the one place you'd want to go back to? I always say Leard Hot Springs. Mm. Is that right? Because it's yeah. in the middle of nature. It's a very place, natural like place. And also because of the effect it had on me at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there'll be other places around the world where which will challenge Liard Hot Springs, but at the moment, that's the one place for me. Wow. Then I had a medical issue in Los Angeles and needed to use the medical insurance again. And that's the frightening thing of cancer as well. You know, I had an, uh, an issue that as a red flag for any woman, but I thought, no, I need to get this checked. And we're in, we're in a foreign country. We've now got to go through insurance and it's scary. And yeah, mm. it's it's our age and it's it's mm. our history and well, it is. that was always a worry but we seem to have got through all that i was fine i had biopsies and things done and everything was fine but it's uh so we're now determined not to visit a hospital in mexico yeah, we've done every country so far you mentioned you have insurance carl when you went in for insurance you you checked with your insurance and they said pay for it and apply for the refund which that can be really costly did that work out okay uh, pretty much yeah it did work out pretty much there were obviously some things that they wouldn't pay for because they're not part of the policy and um, that's where our not planning things maybe didn't do us any favours because yeah. the one thing they wouldn't pay for was the accommodation in Whitehorse for yeah, the because we hadn't had to change the accommodation because we were living pretty much in a tent we didn't have any accommodation booked. Uh, evidence booked to show that this is what we need to change. Therefore, we can claim we, so we didn't lose, Yeah, we didn't have to cancel accommodation. So they, they didn't pay the uh, accommodation, but they paid pretty much everything else. Oh, I see. So the insurance company is looking for you to say, here's here's our booking for here. We had to cancel that and yeah. I had to book this. But because you're camping and you then you were forced to book something that you wouldn't have otherwise paid for, they're not going to cover that. No, no, they didn't cover that. No. But they ah, covered all the medical fees. They, did, they covered all the medical fees. They co- yes. No, but it's those little things you don't know until you experience it, right? Or, or yeah. there's a story. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, we are a bit more out of pocket because of those instances. But um, but get medical insurance. That was the one thing I was going to say. Get medical insurance. Oh, yeah. It's Everyone's, oh, it's so expensive. Yes, it is. Until you until need, you need it. it. And then it's really, really cheap. <laughs> right. Because can you talk a bit about the, the fees that you had to pay? The, what, what the medical insurance cost us? No, with the fees you had to pay at the hospital. Oh, the hospital. Well, you walk into a, any hospital in Canada and it was uh, $800 just to say hello. Mm-hmm. I think 650 well, $650 or 700 yeah. something like that, yeah, just to yeah. say hello, can you see me? Um, for that first $700, you saw the nurse. Yeah. She then talks to the consultant at Whitehorse because that's how the system works because there are doctors everywhere because it's obviously so spread out. He wanted to see you. As soon as he walked into hospital at Whitehorse, it was another $700. Yeah. Because uh, so, you're going through the same triage again, so they're going to charge you that. I said, what I think, I think it's $685. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. yeah. So is it just for this yeah. seat that we sat in for 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah. And then, so then the CT scan was another cost on top of that. So that was $1,500, I think. 
Yeah, the uh, oh, the, the consultant, consultant fee himself. Two fifty. Yeah, we had to pay him direct. So it was all slowly racking up. Then yeah. there was the medication on top of. Oh that. yeah, that was part. Of, that was about a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, it, and it's kind of scary though because you're you're paying it out of pocket and you're mm-hmm. you're only hoping the insurance company is going yes. to cover it. Yes. Yes, it all happened. The way yours happened is you paid for it and then we had to claim it back. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you've got to have the money up front to pay yeah. for it. Yeah. Mine didn't work that way around. I contacted the insurance company first and they okayed me to go to hospital. So I had to pay right. a deposit at hospital which was 700 US dollars. Well, I think it was 800 US dollars actually. 800 US dollars which I'm claiming back, but apart from four taxi rides, I didn't have anything else to claim because I left it to the hospital to contact the insurance company. And I had a biopsy done at a clinic. And again, the clinic just took the insurance details because they'd okayed that. So, um, yeah, we weren't out, we were only out of pocket $900 or something like that for my treatment, which claims going through at the moment. Hmm. Is that Um, two different policies you guys have? We have a joint policy. Joint policy. Joint policy for two years, is it? Oh, I see. It's just how you approached it. Yes. Yeah, we're both named on the same policy, but obviously your treatment was before. Yeah, you... Part part of my issue was that um, the insurance policy always says that you need to contact the insurance company as soon as possible to advise them so that they can then manage the situation thereafter. Uh, Yeah, we've heard some scare stories about people who haven't wanted their insurance company, they've incurred all these costs and the insurance company turns around and says, well, you didn't use our preferred supplier. Yeah. Hey, you know, <laughs> I was a contract manager in my, in my first life, so I should know about this. Um, oh, and I then see. the insurance company doesn't pay out. Now, my issue was that they kept saying to me, but you didn't contact us up front and tell us about it before incurring these costs. And I said, well, I did but I did it via an online chat and I didn't keep a record of that online chat. So I had no evidence to present to them to say I had been told it's okay to go and seek treatment. And this went on for a little while, but in the end they looked at the the details and the claim and they, they agreed to pay it. But I would say to anyone, if you have the insurance and need to make a claim, make sure you contact your insurance company as soon as possible and explain to obviously. If you're going to need an ambulance ride, you don't say, oh, hang on a minute, don't go up for it. Don't pick me up off the side of the road. <laughs> you're about to die. I've got then, to yeah. wait for my insurance company. I've got to make a call. <laughs> yeah, I just need to make a call. Um, as soon as you can, you must involve that insurance company. Otherwise, it can come back and bite you. Uh, because they said to me, they said, that's fine. You can go to hospital. If you need any scans or tests done, you must phone us first. And I said but you know what's going to happen. I'll get to hospital. I'll end up on the conveyor belt. I won't be able to phone you and they'll do the scans. So what do I do then? Oh, just phone us. Well, I've just said, and anyway, this went backwards and forwards. So I got to hospital, got on the conveyor belt, had the scans. <laughs> so then I emailed them and said, well, I told you this would happen. Is that okay? And they said, yeah, that's fine. Mm. Because we'd had that conversation and we'd had that conversation. I had phoned them and it was on an email. Um, so just try and get everything. But uh, this wrong. was part of the other challenge that we experience going by going through this is that the insurance company insists that you ring them to tell them about it but actually we're in a different country and our mm. uh the american sim that we had bought to give us cell coverage in in the u.s uh, you know in alaska and canada didn't allow us to do international calls so mm. we actually struggled to make those international calls in the first place 
so there were challenges that we got over and we managed to find a way of getting around it, but it's just... It's stressful. It's stressful. And we also Medical think, issues are stressful in your own home, when you're at home, yeah. in your own country, when you know the system, when you're not in your own country and you don't know the system and then money's involved, it's, it's just it can be a bit it's really stressful. And what we are finding that the larger corporations that we deal with in the UK, because we have to, particularly money-wise and everything else, um, they haven't really got the systems in place to look after their customers when their customers are overseas for a longer period of time. If you're overseas on a two or three week holiday, yes, you you pay through the nose, whatever, to get your mobile phone coverage so you can do whatever you need to do. Um, but it's a bit different when you're yeah. on the road for any length of time. Is the communication they insist is through phone. Then you're dealing with a different time zone where we were eight hours behind. Um, and we didn't, our American SIM couldn't do international calls, even though we went into the company and said, we need to make international calls. But because we weren't American citizens, we couldn't buy the extension, which would allow for international calls. It's quite bizarre. <laughs> right. Did you think of using a VoIP app for that? Like, you know, Skype or something? Well, yeah, well, we would prefer to. They don't the companies that we were dealing with wouldn't allow it, couldn't do no, it. No, but I mean, <laughs> Skype, you can phone yeah. a phone number on Skype. Yeah, but they they wouldn't allow Skype because as far as they're concerned, it's not a secure enough link to be able to discuss these financial or, or things with. Phone so. WhatsApp and that was, that don't get me wrong. They wouldn't do it. Jim, it, it may be something that we haven't explored properly enough and something else that we need to learn somewhere yeah. later on is actually the ways of dealing with these calls. Well, Maybe. it does make you wonder, though, these companies, these are big companies. They sell insurance. That's what they're doing is selling you travel insurance. Yet they don't seem to be taking into consideration the fact that the time zones, the fact that phones are not necessarily available to them. It, it just seems kind of strange and wonders, you know, makes you wonder if it's not by design. Make it a little more difficult and, you know, put up some yeah. barriers. Yeah. I, obviously, I, I'm going to defend insurance companies a little bit <laughs> because I've worked for them for 34 years. But and, and, and the underwriters of our insurance company I used to work for. Same company I used to work for. There's a little bit of defense, I think, on there. Um, I don't think they necessarily put these in place to create barriers. I know they won't because actually they're not allowed to. I think it's just they don't consider when they are creating systems and creating processes, they don't consider that a proportion of their customers may be overseas. So I think that's it. I think it's just... They don't consider the issues. They sell the insurance for overseas. So they also know they're going overseas, but they don't maybe appreciate the issues if you're on a long-term journey. No. But you get mm. around it, we solved it in the end. and So I'll defend them slightly. Yeah, it's not, you're not convincing me, Carl. And you're, yeah, I wish, I wish they would make it easier. <laughs> As a witness, you have no credibility. I'm sorry. But let's talk a bit about the, the North itself. I, I mean, what was this like? Isabel, you said you always wanted to go to Alaska. And, and what was this whole thing like when you arrived and rode in Alaska and the Yukon. It was just incredible. I, I've always wanted to go there all my life. I've not bothered to do any research on the country or why I wanted to go there. It's just something that's been in me. Um, and I would go back there like a shot. I think I'd go and live there. <laughs> yeah. um, I just I just loved it. And it, it, I, I can't... We tried to describe things on the videos and we said we've run out of adjectives, really. <laughs> and we just keep saying mm-hmm. vast. It's vast. 
It's fast. No, it's fast. There's no R. Fast. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is it's vast, is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> and it's just incredible. And and nature, it, it is just, I think nature wins up there every yes. time. We had very mixed feelings riding up the Dalton Highway. We go, this is amazing. Just look at it. And then, oh, there's the pipeline that you see pictures of. What an eyesore. That really yeah, shouldn't be here. But actually, <laughs> if the pipeline wasn't there, we wouldn't you be wouldn't. riding up the Dalton Highway. That's right. <laughs> it was totally mixed feelings. I have a friend who's, who's a, a geography and geology teacher, and she said, we have discussions on that with every class every year. The pro, you know, the whys and the wherefores, the pros and the cons. Um, but it was, I felt incredibly privileged. I think yes. privileged is a good word. We feel incredibly, incredibly privileged to witness all this nature. Um, and privileged to be able to ride up the Hall Road mm. and see it all, and go for the swim in the Arctic Ocean. What was really bizarre well, about that was that so was, surreal. It was 30 degrees Celsius um, temperature-wise, you know, mid-late 80s Fahrenheit. And see, it was warm. It, so it was warm, yeah. And it was bright blue uh, sky. sky and we were in Prudhoe Bay and the water was, uh, it's not as cold as we were expecting. I had already said, I had always joked about, Izzy will go for a swim and I'll hold her towel. But actually when it came to it, I went in as well. But what mm. was really surreal was we were swimming in the Arctic Ocean and on the horizon was a band of sea ice. So you had the blue from the sea, then you had this band of white sea ice and then the blue of the sky. And that to me was really surreal and it was wow yeah we've made we've it. had so many wow moments where yeah. there are no words to the we not that we can think of to and, actually describe yeah and we rode the dalton highway in perfect conditions perfect conditions dry blue skies yeah. we saw the brooks range the all the mountains and things coming yeah. through there most other people come through there in shocking weather sliding all over the road and <laughs> So, yeah. Like a whole piece of cake down on highway. Extremely yeah. <laughs> lucky. Yeah, we were very lucky. Privileged. But when we got back down, we stopped at the Dalton Highway sign again with a bat on, and I stood there and I said to you, we've done it. I can't believe we've been up there and back again. It, the whole thing is just And the other thing surreal. that struck me about that particular sign, because uh, on the Dalton Highway, there's the area where you go through the Arctic, uh, through yeah. the Arctic Circle. The map shows where you are on the Arctic Circle. We were then able to be able to look over the North Pole into the top of Nord Cap and say, oh, we were in the Arctic Circle over there as yeah. well. Oh, yeah, um, right. So that, that, that felt a bit special. Yeah. But I just loved everybody in Alaska as well. Very, very friendly. Very, very helpful. They can't do enough for you because that's how they need to, they need to live because it's so harsh. It's so spread out you need to know that your neighbor who is five miles down the road has got your back if yeah you don't even necessarily need to like your neighbor no. you just need to know that your neighbor will help you out when things go pear shape yeah because mm -hmm. you have to rely I just on love that attitude so a really friendly attitude yeah really really nice what else have you guys learned on the road oh um like for instance what you learned about a bear bag you learned what well, we learned that bear bags aren't waterproof. It's all very well hanging in a tree, but if it rains, want, it fills up with Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> that was a penny crossing, wasn't it? That was it? a penny crossing. But just after you've fallen off your bike and we camped for the night and it started to rain and we got into bed and we'd, we'd, we'd done it all properly. There were no bear boxes, so we'd put it up in a tree as high as we could away from us and thought, well, that'll do. <laughs> got into bed and then we lay there and I said, 
do you think the bear bags are waterproof? And he said, we'll find out in the morning. And then he came back and said, no, it isn't. No, it was full of water. It does drain. Yeah. To be fair, it doesn't sit with water in it, but everything in it gets wet. Yeah, everything was full. <laughs> so yeah, we learned the bear bags aren't waterproof. They're designed to keep bears out, but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> but the other, the other thing that we found incredible when we left, I said, I just want to see these animals that we see in zoos or in books. I want to see them in their natural habitat. And we didn't really, we saw elk and caribou and moose and things like that in Alaska, but we didn't see any bears. And I said, I don't think bears exist. It's all a myth. And we then crossed into... Into the Yukon. Into the U. No, we crossed into British Columbia. Oh, yes. It's from and um, there's a big neon sign on the road and it said, Danger! Um, have a bison on the road. road. I went, oh, yeah, they probably have that up all the time. And we rode around the corner and went, oh, my God, there's like 200 all over the road. (laughs) There was a massive herd of bison just on both sides of the road. Herds of bison all the way down that piece of road. And it was incredible. And you Um, realise just how big that animal is. And other people stopped for a photo. Please don't block the road. We don't want to stop. We just want to slow down a bit and keep going. Um, but yes, it was that was incredible, um, and then we started seeing bears. Uh, well, and uh, we were at a stop sign on the roadworks, mm. going through uh, on this road through Yukon and Bridge Columbia. It kind of bounces across the borders, and we were at the stop sign uh, at the front of the queue and waiting for the traffic to come through the other way. And suddenly, a bear pops out <laughs> of the out bear. of the woods, <laughs> a youngish bear, on the other side of the road and starts wandering down the bank. And we're sitting there chatting as we do. First of all, I said, well, where's Mum? <laughs> what do we do if that bear comes towards us? And I think Izzy's solution was... I'm getting was, in the truck with that guy. Yeah, <laughs> Izzy's solution was <laughs> in the truck with the guy that was at the front. And my solution was, well, I'm just going to blow the red light and just keep getting, go and get, get going out of it. But yeah, so we just sat there and watched the bear and the bear just carried on doing bear things. And uh, it became something of nothing. But riding a bike, we've we felt a lot more vulnerable than people who are in cars when we are in, um, confronting, Looking not at confronting, the wildlife. but meeting this wildlife that's on the road. It's fantastic. Yeah, so it's things like that, seeing the, and seeing all this fruit and things that we eat. I wanted to see, I want to see where it grows and we've seen it. Hmm. Yeah, we've seen banana trees, uh, coconut trees. Yeah, the banana dates. trees, that threw me. Oh, I always, always imagine said, bananas growing no. downwards, you know, like a claw down. Mm-hmm. But actually, bananas grow upwards. And I've said, this is a and, fun fact I learned years and years and years ago. And I used to say to people, you do know bananas grow upside down, upwards. Oh, don't be silly. I said, they do. Anyway, we found a banana tree with bananas on it. So, yes, <laughs> bananas grow upwards. Mm. And it's just seeing all these things that you don't see in your country where we don't grow those those things. It's, no. it's yeah. And the animals, like coming across the tarantula. Oh, we found the yeah. tarantula in his hole. Yeah, I ticked that box. Don't see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what about the bikes, your bikes and your gear? How, how has that worked out? Um, yeah, the bikes are fine. Touch wood. They haven't skipped a beat. Yeah, no, we're on our third back tyre and our <laughs> second front. Uh, we always knew we'd go through the first set of tyres on in Alaska very quickly because the roads are quite rough. Um, but yeah, other than that, oil and filter change. Yeah. Not a lot we've had to it's, do. It's been, yeah, I don't want to tempt fate, but there's a bit of wood attached to that. Um, because the bikes really have been amazing. Yeah. They haven't skipped a beat. They haven't, no. they've just done what we've asked for them, really. But no, the gear generally has all been really good. Mm. Um, it, it does take a beating. 
you know, going for a three-week tour every year and the odd weekend doesn't test gear. You know, you've got to go on the road for several months, day in, mm. day out. Mm. Yeah, um, day after day of using it continuously. Yeah, yeah. It's a totally different ball game. Yeah. But no, generally it's, mm. it's holding up not too badly, really. <laughs> you've, you've only crossed a, a few borders so far. Have you learned anything about border crossings? <laughs> yes. Border crossings. I shouldn't be allowed Carl's to go anywhere near border crossings. I'd like to speak. We knew you didn't get into Denver on the way in at the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we flew into Denver and I, I don't know, we just had an officious kind of customs chat. And our body clocks were telling us it was three o'clock in the morning. Two or three o'clock in the morning for us and we just didn't really answer the way we should have done. And he said, well, how long are you coming in for? I said, oh, six months. And he just looked at me. He said, it doesn't work like that. I said, it does look, I've got a visa. <laughs> it wasn't the answer, apparently. Um, no, he said, so when's your flight home? When's your flight home? I said, I haven't got one. He said, but that, I said, no, we're, we're overlanding on motorbikes. We've flown in. I said, yeah, motorbikes are an anchorage. We're about to get a connecting flight. He couldn't get we're, we're riding south. And we're going into, but you've got to, you can't, you can't get out of this country without flying because we're an island. I said, yeah, but we're not flying from America. We're flying out from Chile. <laughs> but he couldn't get his head around that. Um, oh, wow. And then he asked how much money we had. He asked how much money have you got in your account? And so I said, he oh, said, about 2,000 pounds or something. Or was it 1,500 pounds? I think it wasn't even that. I think he said it wasn't even 500. That. I said, no, that's not the answer I really want to hear. Because we've got oh. money in another account that we transfer every month because it gets good interest. So right. we transfer it every month to pay off yeah. the credit card. I said, no, no, the answer is this. And then he's thinking, well, there's two different answers there. What's going on? He just got really cross, stamped our visas. Well, no, it got even worse than that. He then said, oh, have you got any food on you? And you said and, no. And because as you're walking through to the customs, they say all well, these items that you're not allowed to bring with you. So when meat. you said, have you got any food with Meat, you? vegetables, all that. Yeah. And I said, oh, no, 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 we haven't got any food with us. Oh, except I have got a bag of peanuts on me. Oh, so that is food then, isn't it? He said, stamp, stamp, yes. Just go. And then he got across and just stamped off passports for six months and said, oh, just go. Okay, we've got six yeah. months. Right. But that was traumatic. That was the first border where we speak the language. Okay. But in hindsight, so, he has actually hadn't entered no. me onto the system correctly. Because we then went to Skagway, as I said, and... Um, you have to cross from Canada, obviously, back into Alaska to get to Skagway. And we rolled up to the, the little box and he scanned your passport and it didn't scan. He said, well, you're not checked into the States. He said, no, no, I've got the visa. They said, I can see the visa there. He said, but somehow you're not coming up on the system. And then he scanned mine. He saw that was all fine. He said, oh, that'll be fine. And he just initialed it in Carl's passport. So off we went to Skagway, came back, no issues with the, um, oh, we got to the Canadian crossing up on the uh, top of the road highway, top of the world highway. And uh, the, the, official, the I, official there said. I, in my head, I thought we had to go through the US customs to get out of the US and then into the Canadian customs to get into because Canada. Because that's what you do in the country's first That's size. what was happening in my head. Mm. So we rocked up and we pulled up next to this uh, immigration guy and everything else. And he said, uh, what's it like? And uh, it was something about something the about weather. The weather. And you said, oh, you've got a nice day for it. Yeah, and he said, oh, the weather's not so great going forward. I said, yeah, but as long as it was all right in the US. And he said, oh, that's just Canada. And he went, oi, and pointing to his badge on his yeah, shoulder. Uh, I suddenly realised he was the Canadian <laughs> customs. So I was just slagged off Canada before he even got into it. And I said, well, that's you not going through. And he said, yeah, you're going back that way. I'll let her through. <laughs> well, we, had <laughs> we had a fantastic laugh at the joke. He was great. So um, it's just funny. So that was fine. Then we got into Skagway eventually. No problems coming back. And then we went to Vancouver Island and we crossed back into the States from uh, from 
Victoria. Victoria into Port Angeles. So we get to Victoria and the guys came round to have a chat. So what are you doing? Oh, what a great journey. Oh, this is amazing. This is fantastic. Oh, we'll give you another six months. And he wrote it on the docket that we had to take in. He said, just go and queue up in there and both go in at the same time when they call you. So we both went in at the same time and got shouted at one at a time. So sorry, we were told to come in together. Who told you that? I said, well, your colleague outside. <clears throat> so they were in a huff already. And then oh, no. they scanned my passport. That was fine. Put it on the title. Oh, they didn't stamp it. If they're going to give us another six months, surely they should stamp it. And I kind of quietly said, oh, have we got another six months? And she just ignored me. I thought I was too frightened to ask again. She scanned your passport. I said, well, you're not checked in properly. You, you, you need a... Uh, yeah. Go. So she basically said, there's a... There's a chair outside. Yeah. Go and sit on that chair and wait until you. So you're on the naughty chair. Now you don't have to walk out the chair. She's sitting on the naughty step. You're sitting there with your back to everyone else that's queuing to go through the customs. So they're all sitting there thinking, "Oh, he's a naughty boy. I wonder what he's done." So I went out. I went back to wait outside. I thought, "Well, I don't know what's happening now." So. I'm terrible with official stuff anyway. Yeah, and I thought, "Well, I don't know whether we're going to the states or not. Maybe we're going back to our friends for another month. I don't know." So. Another couple of officials came over and said, oh, have you been seen? I said, oh, yeah, we've been seen. I said, everything's fine. I said, however, there seemed to be a problem with my husband. I said he was, he's not got a, an entry ticket, but he's got a six-month visa in his passport, the same as I have. And they haven't given me six months in my passport. Should they put another date on it? And he said, oh, that's not right. He said, oh, come on, I'll sort you out. Let's get it sorted. So he came in with me and we collected you on the way in. And he said, oh, just check them in, give them six months. And then the guy said, doesn't work like that. And he said, just give them six months. And this kind of went on for ages wow. and it transpired. The whole problem was the guy at Denver hadn't, whatever he had to do on the system, press a button or whatever, I don't know. He, he hadn't took, done it on Carl's He took his revenge over my bag of peanuts. He did. He? So he hadn't done that on Carl's passport. So Carl wasn't officially in the States. So he hadn't, it's a bit like your, um, like the FMM we have when we come in here, the tourist mm. visa, you have to pay your money and you pay it in your flight normally. So you don't see it. So we just had to pay another seven dollars or something to get your entry visa entry ticket but it was we didn't understand what was going on they didn't explain it and then they st and, and in the end the guy said just do it just give him so we did it in the end we're just it's not normal but i'll give it to you anyway okay that's fine we were very thankful thank you very much and then the first guy and then literally just as we were about to leave the first guy comes bounding in and says oh these guys told you what they're going doing they're traveling around the world I just turned and said, well, they didn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> so that was us into the States oh, again. So we yeah. got to Mexico and I said, just be quiet. Let me do it. <laughs> However, it was very easy getting to, Mexico, into Mexico. It was yeah. fine. Yeah. No problems at all. <laughs> and now what's your plan? Where do you go from here? Probably don't know yet. Probably <laughs> Belize. Yes. We're just, we're just meandering across to, in that direction. Yeah, um, we've had an invitation, a very kind invitation from someone in Belize to go and stay, stay on their ranch for a little bit. Resort, so um, yeah. hmm. we'll probably go and wander we'll go down there. there. Um, then into Guatemala and then yeah. just gradually working our way down. I've got a friend in Ecuador I'd like to see. Depends how long we get in Ecuador. There are issues there at the moment with foreigners because of the unrest there. But um, they're letting people in, but sometimes only for 10 days. Um, so we might have to just go straight through there. But we're really taking it country at a time. We're working mm. on the Belize it's almost border. one day at a time. One day it? at a time, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you have no no timeline. Like you, you're going to have seasonal things you're going to have to deal yes. with as you get yes. south. Well, the, which is why and the seasonal thing was the thing that chased us 
south from Alaska through Canada and through America. It was seasonal. It's why we didn't really get very far east in the States. We got as far as the Grand Canyon and we wanted to do Bryce Canyon, but the day we would have made it up there, it was minus 15 at night. And we thought, maybe not. Mm. <laughs> so there will be there will be situations where we are in that situation because we are, but there was no point in putting ourselves like the no. lorry in that situation. And, <laughs> um, and the, the irony of it is that we were aware of the snow coming down and the bad weather chasing us yeah. south all the time. But literally the day we left... Uh, um, Nogales, we crossed. Yeah, I'd come across on Nogales from... Uh, oh, I've forgotten the state. Arizona. Arizona. <laughs> it. Um, it snowed. It snowed. <laughs> we left in the snow. <laughs> so we've been chased down by it for months and months till the last day. Yeah. Well, now at your latitude that you're at now, you, there's less concern of, of oh, weather. Yeah. You have no concern of, of weather. No, you can hang out there, but you do have to time it for going south. We yeah. do, we do. Um, we would like to be in Ushuaia by November, November, December. Yeah, I'd like to be in Ushuaia for December there. for my 60th for your birthday. your 60th birthday, that would be great to be in Ushuaia yeah. for my 60th. Um, that would be the um, end of this leg. And then, depending on the money, whether we sold the house and yeah. or whether we're flying home because we've run out of money or not. But I remember saying to somebody... They said, oh, you know, you're, it's a crazy, crazy thing to do. I can't believe you're doing it, but we really admire you because it, it is fantastic. And we have friends and they're kind of living their dreams through our journey. So I said to them, but, you know, I'd rather go and fail and end up coming back than not try at all. And they said, mm -hmm. well, it doesn't matter if you go for three weeks, you haven't failed because you've gone. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, that's a really good way of looking at it, actually. Um, however far we get with the money is where we get to. If we have to go home at that point, we go home. But we haven't failed because we've got this journey. And like I said, it's the most stupid financial decisions of financial decisions, but the best life choice because mm. when we get home, whenever it is, be it next month, next year, in two years, whenever, what we've experienced and what we've got, those memories, nobody can take those memories away from us. Um, it's, it's, and it's in us forever. Mm. And I well, won't ever regret that. But you do know, though, that after this chat with Jim, I won't get a job back with an insurance company, will I? No. <laughs> That's well, luckily, right. your boss has moved to another one, so he may he give you a good There's word. no going back. <laughs> but, but the thing is, you can check your money that you've got. You, you can do some rough calculations, figure out how much your visas are going to cost and those big expenses yeah. and shipping, yeah. of course, and sort of get a rough idea of, of how far you might get on what you've got. Have you done that exercise? Have you worked that out? <laughs> Not completely. <laughs> I, I think we'll get to Ushuaia. Yeah, I, I, we'll I, I actually hate money. I, I, I have a, a, a real dislike for money and it brings me out in cold. It does. As soon as I ask you to do anything about mm. the money, he just has an anxiety. So I, I almost don't want to know what's left in the pot. Whereas right. I, am keeping, I am keeping a spreadsheet of what we spend, yeah. which is quite frightening. Um but again, actually, up until now, we really didn't know what was left in the pot because we couldn't access it because we're abroad and we can't phone them up. And on it went. We couldn't get the two-factor authentication codes. But we have oh, made, before we left, we have made my brother our LPA, our legal power of attorney. So we've now put that into place and he's now accessing our, our accounts and our things so that we can make changes, mm. do things and get the money on time, etc. And you don't think of these things actually until no, you leave. It takes a long time to put the legal power of attorney in place before mm. you go. But for anyone, I would recommend that you do that. If you're going on a long journey, have someone you can trust back home who is your legal power of attorney who can do certain things for you. Because um, it just makes life so much easier. 
Yeah. Right. Otherwise, you're you may be forced to fly home to deal with something. And yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've had to put my brother's phone number on something um, recently. I can't remember what it was. And I messaged him and said, you're going to get a code, send it me straight away. Because the code was valid, valid for something like a minute and a half. Oh, um, he walks up me the code and I get it in and then I was fine. But yeah, you need to have that and that sort of backup because mm. these two-factor authentication codes are great until you can't get the text. <laughs> right. And if so, you sell the house, like if, if the house sells for you, yeah. which, you know, obviously is probably going to sell for you, yeah. that really finalizes it for you. There is no place to go back to for sure. To be but, honest. It's already finalized for us because if we go back, we wouldn't get the jobs. We, have. we wouldn't get the we wouldn't salary get the that would pay the mortgage that we're still paying on the house. So we couldn't afford it. So we, back anyway. we already knew when we quit our jobs that we would never be going back to that same house. We would oh, have to be going back to somewhere else. But what we so will we really do, have burnt all but the it will, it will, once we sell it, depending on what we sell it for, once we sell it, you don't need to keep a lot back um, to be able to afford something very, very small. Yes. And having lived in a tent in a hotel in hotel rooms for in people's houses for the last six months, you don't do, do realise what you don't need. You yeah. really do realise what yeah. you don't need in life and what's important. And we don't want another three-bedroomed house. <laughs> um, right, so you just need a little plot and a, and a really nice tent. Yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that so would be fine. <laughs> the walls and the roof, yes. Yeah, we, yeah. Just, yeah, we really just need a very small place um, to, to, to live. Um, yeah. And, so um, we can filter off some money from what we will make on the house after we've paid off the mortgage that we still own. Yeah. Oh, sorry, because obviously we still own quite a lot of money on it. Um, so we can filter off some that will actually... Probably complete the journey for yeah, us. So if there's any financial advisors out there, they've, they're probably pulling their hair out at the moment yeah. because we have been making such <laughs> stupid financial decisions to get here. <laughs> I'm not to do uh, it. But we're pleased with it. And people we met on the road, they say, oh, you're such an inspiration. I just don't know if I can do that. And I said, do it. They said, but, you know, what happens when you get home in, in a year's time? I said, I might be dead in a month's time. I might mm. be dead next year. And yeah. it's very stark and it's very black and white, but it's true. Well, and I always said, I don't want to get... I talked about the type of cancer I had earlier, the lobular pleomorphic. That has, the chance of, on the chart, I've got a very small chance of recurrence. But that particular cancer has a high chance of recurrence. So where do I sit on that? Who knows? It's a roll of the dice. Ten, and it tends to come back in 10, 15, 20 years, not in three or four or five. And I'm six years clear now. So I don't want to get to the 10-year, 15-year points when I'm whatever, then 65, say, in 10 years. And and then the cancer comes back and then I can't go anywhere because I've got to get treatment or something. And I don't feel I want to go anywhere and say, I really wish I'd done that trip, even if it was only for six months. I wish I'd gone when I could have done. Um, I want to be able to say, if it does come back, well, I did that trip and that was fantastic. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't come back, well, happy days and I can do something else. Yeah. <laughs> Living in a tent. Live in a tent because mm -hmm. we spent all of money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Nobody is guaranteed the future. And we don't want people who've got to our age and think it's too late, we can't do an adventure. You can do an adventure. It doesn't have to be anything quite as drastic as we've done. But go and do it. Don't, don't think you can't. Do you find that the longer you're on the road, the more comfortable you become with that, that sort of attitude? For me, the fear is still there. Um, the fear of the unknown and... 
the fear of what may happen. Um, I'm a very pessimistic kind of outlook on life anyway, and uh, I do suffer from anxiety and and stuff like that. So the fear for me is still there every day, but I am happy that I'm able to face that fear. It sounds sounds a bit naff, sounds a bit crazy. But we did a fantastic road. We rode up to, I don't know how you pronounce Alamos, on 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 um, paved roads, and then we wanted to go from Alamos to El Fuerte, and we decided to follow the the trail, which we knew would go off road. And you get off road, and you're riding along, and you think, oh, oh, should we be here? We're right in the sticks now, and the fear does come back. Yeah. But you think, but it's fine. Everybody that's passed us on their little bikes and things have all waved. When we stopped for lunch, they all stopped and said, "Are you okay?" We said, "Yeah, we're fine. Okay," and they and they went on their way. Everybody was so so friendly. It was. It was an absolutely amazing day. We got to the accommodation that night, though, and oh, did we, we felt so fantastic on adrenaline. The roads well, were well, quite yeah. hard for us as well. That road, it was a challenge. It was in the middle of nowhere. It was sandy, dirt, rocky. It was the kind of road that the T7's built for, but we're not. If I'd seen it prior, uh, I wouldn't have ridden it. No. And all the way along there, in my mind, running through my mind is, oh, I'm going to get a puncture in me. What if the bike stops working? What if we fall off? What if, what if, what if? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's just how my brain is wired, that I have that challenge yeah. all the day. That's not to say I don't enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I really enjoyed it. When we got there. But I really enjoyed it when we got there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm really happy when we got there. But that's just the way my brain is wired. So every day I still live with that anxiety and that fear of what, what if, what may happen. Um, but the question is then, would you rather live with that, that anxiety today or would you rather be at home? Oh, no, 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 no. I'd far rather be exactly. here because one of the things that my old job used to be was planning for things that are <laughs> in the future, some dim, distant place somewhere, um, for things that may never happen. But it's all about putting those processes and the agreements <laughs> and things in place that um, for things that may or may not happen. Now that we're out here, we're doing very little planning. There is some planning, oil filters, uh, bike maintenance, stuff like that. But each day throws up a challenge or something that you need to deal with today. And that, to me, is what I'm enjoying more. Not thinking about things I've got to fix in six months' time, but things I've got to fix today. And trying to be uh, adaptive in, oh, crikey, this has gone wrong. Okay, how am I going to deal with this? What have I got at hand? Where are the zip ties? Where are the bits and pieces? Now, what can I do to, um, to fix this with the limited means that I've got to get me out of this fix today? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, and that's the, the, the stresses you have in your inverted commas normal life are totally different to the stresses here. You don't have that stress of looking ahead, planning, me planning lessons or you planning your your projects and things like that. Um, it's where are we going to go today and then the stress of me having a meltdown because I'm far too hot and can't cope with this weather. And then but you know that's going to you know that's going to pass. Well, you need feeding. I need feeding. That's a regular occurrence. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mm. um, things like that. And then where are we going to get the oil change done? You know, we we, we, we're trying to speak the language, but we do struggle with it. We're not very good. Where's the next fuel stop? Yeah, things like that. It's your day-to-day 
it's the day-to-day stresses. Um, they're not very in the future. They're current, aren't they? Yeah. Well, I wish you the best of luck all the way to the end of your, your adventure when you return home safely. And thank you so much, Carl and Isabel. No, no, it's all right. You're welcome. You're welcome. We are honoured to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. speaking with Isabel and Carl Abram from the road somewhere in Mexico. They have a YouTube channel and full social channels all called Life 2 on Tour. Their website is life2ontour.co.uk. The two is the number two, not the word. Now we've got some photos and links in the show notes for this episode, as always on our website, adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course, you. Thank you very much for being a part of the show by listening. The show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. Please consider dropping by the website. I mean, just drop by the website. It doesn't hurt to look. Look, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker for your pannier, your toolbox. These are 3M stickers. They're actually really nice, but... More importantly, we'd love it if you'd consider looking at our Patreon program so that you pay a monthly amount. And with that as a bonus, you get access to an ad-free version. So if you want to hear a version without any ads in it, that's the way to go to the Patreon account. All at AdventureRiderRadio.com. Click on support. Now, the other show that we do is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. That's available everywhere you find podcasts. All this information is available at our website, AdventureRiderRadio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 